The PCI Security Standards Council this week at its North America community meeting in Vancouver announced the release of a new guide designed to help organizations prepare for and respond to data breaches. According to the council, a typical data breach costs a breach company approximately $3.8 million. However, organizations that have incident response teams and plans in place before they are breached can greatly reduce those costs. Here, Jeremy King, International Director of the Council, explains how the new guide, Responding to a Data Breach, a how-to guide for incident management, aims to provide merchants and service providers with key recommendations for preparing and reacting quickly to a breach once it is suspected and specifically what to do to contain damage and facilitate an effective investigation. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So Jeremy, the council announced this week that it has published a new guide that was developed by the council in collaboration with the PCI Forensic Investigators Community. Can you tell us about some of the highlights that are noted in the guidance? So hello there, Tracy. Yes, certainly. This is one of the big issues that organizations really need to face up to. You know, unfortunately, we live in the world where breaches aren't going to occur. And one of the things that we've seen over the years is there is a significant difference between those organizations who have a incident response plan in place and those that don't. And our forensic investigators are the people who really go in and find and understand what's happened in the breach. And they've been able to share their learnings to enable us to provide this guide on how to respond to a data breach. So really this is an exciting document to be able to get out into the public because it gives people guidance on what to do ahead of them being breached. And I'll come back to that a little later on as to why that is so important. It talks about having an incident response plan in place. And really that then leads to, you know, how do you notify partners? When do you notify partners? How do you manage your third-party contracts? And when do you engage a forensic investigator? What to expect in the various phases of the breach and, and what support you can expect? So it's really a good overview of what to do when the unfortunate happens and your organization is breached. Jeremy, has the council ever developed or published guidance or best practices related to breach preparedness or response in the past? No, this is the first time that we've come into this space. And again, as I was saying, this is really important. And just to explain a little bit why I think it's so important, I was talking to a merchant just recently, and I was talking to their chief information security officer, and he said he was out traveling, visiting one of their merchant sites, and it was that call they literally said, you are the problem, you have been breached. And he was like, I'm not in my office, and for me, the world is just about to end, what do we do now? And he said, if we had a data breach, then it's the case of, okay, it's time to break the glass and pull out the incident plan, and everything's ready. You know, we've been such a better place because when that call comes, you've got a lot of important actions to take. One of those was, it was before nine o'clock, do we open the doors of the merchants at nine o'clock or are we going to put even more people's cards at risk? And these are important questions that you need to have in place ready for if that call comes so you know who to talk to. You know, do you tell the CEO straight away? Has the CEO been trained on what to do and what to say to the media? Because, you know, very quickly we find the media can find out about the breaches and suddenly you're in front of the media defending your organization get it right and your organization comes through it well, get it wrong and it can have significant impact on your organization and on people's jobs. So Jeremy, you mentioned that this guidance aims to help merchants put together very detailed plans. What about this guidance makes it so unique? 
I think it really is a good, open, honest guide of what is going to happen and what you need to be doing. I'll give you one example, again, from talking to organizations. Many organizations, and certainly ones I've worked in in the past, have very strict criteria about bringing in new organizations onto their book. So if you want to bring a new company in, then sometimes, you know, most often you've got to go through the process of getting quotes in and getting three different quotes and then having the purchasing department register them. And that's fine, but if you've just been breached and you need a forensic investigator in a hurry, that's going to be a delay that is so important at such a critical time that this is where the guy can say, engage with a PFI, find some PFIs already and have them on the book so that if the worst happens, at least you can go quickly. So it's really good guidance on helping you to really sort of be ready in case the worst happens. And unfortunately, I'm based in the UK. Each year, the UK government undertakes a survey of organizations to say how often or if they've been breached. This year's report showed that over 90% of organizations suffered a data breach at some point. So unfortunately, we live in a world where this is likely to happen and therefore, it's going to be imperative that organizations are ready for this. And this guide is really there to help them. Jeremy, the council cites and references many security reports in the new guidance. What can you tell us about some of the key findings that are noted in the guidance from these reports? I think one of the major findings is that in well over 90% of breaches, it is an outside organization that informs you you have been breached. And really, that is critical It's because, unfortunately, the situation is we are still not finding the breaches or organizations are still not finding the breaches themselves. It is the outside agencies that do this. And as I said in my earlier example, when that call comes, it can come at any time. And, you know, you can think things are really going swimmingly well and suddenly you're right in front of the media. I think although it's not related to breaches, I think if you look at what happened with the VW cars and the testing in the USA, that's a prime example of an incident that has to be managed. You know, you think you're doing really well and suddenly you're on all of the front pages of the newspapers. What percentage of businesses would you say globally have adequate breach incident preparedness and response plans? Unfortunately, that's a very low percentage. I don't have the exact figures. I would be very surprised if it got to 10%, probably realistically less than 5%. It is something that organizations haven't thought of, and yet the prime impact of breaches that we read in these reports are the loss of company reputation. And we've seen clear examples of where companies get it right and where companies get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, that can damage your organization. It is something that with this new guide, we're very pleased with the council to have published it, that we can now help start to raise that figure and really raise awareness that you need to have this in place. Well, Jeremy, you've mentioned that it sounds like organizations throughout the world aren't really doing a good job, but do you find that organizations in certain parts of the world, such as Europe or North America, are further along where breach preparedness is concerned relative to other markets? Unfortunately, no. It is really, I think, globally organizations need to take action, and this guide is really going to help them take the action. So what do you think seem to be the greatest challenges organizations face when it comes to putting together some of these breach response teams or the plans? Is it a budgeting issue? It's not the budget issue. It's getting the right people within the organization involved in this. And really, that's been one of the challenges for organizations and for merchants throughout their data security process. 
is it's tended to be given to the IT manager as an IT problem and, and data security is so much more than that. So really it's about getting the board supporting and understanding why they need to have this. You know, we've been working very hard to try and improve and increase board awareness around the need for good data security, the need for password protection, the password policies to be in place. Actually, this is the next step because it's going to involve a lot of the board members. The, the board members are going to be involved in this incident management and in the incident response. So it's getting some time with those guys, getting them to buy into it, helping them to understand that actually this is going to save your company money and actually in certain instances could save your company. A good response plan can do that. So it's not expensive. It's just getting the time and sitting down and getting the organization ready and having the manual in place and then testing it. And that is always the most important part. It's no use having a plan if you never test it and then keeping it up to date. So Jeremy, what should security and fraud teams be doing to convince management that investments in these types of preparedness and response plans are needed? I think just looking at the figures, I think the figures speak for themselves. I, I was reading one of the Ponymon reports and they were saying that the average loss associated per record or per card details is around about $194. Yet, if you've got an incident response plan in place uh, and can call in the experts early, there is a significant reducing factor or reduction in this loss. And so it is a financial benefit. It's not just here is another document. This can and does make a difference. So I know that you're at the community meeting this week, and I'm sure that most of the focus of some of this new guidance has been around payments breaches, but are other breaches touched on in this guidance as well? Well, I think this is the beauty of it. It's one of the things that we've noted with organizations globally is, yes, our prime focus as the PCI Security Standards Council is to protect cardholder data and ensuring that that is kept secure. However, you know, the standards are a good range of data security standards. So in a world where governments are wanting more organizations to focus on cyber security, on protecting uh, personal identifiable information, this works as well for those cases as it does for protecting cardholder data. This is about having good processes in place. This is about having people trained and ready to be aware and ready to go when this happens. And this is about ensuring you have the technology to really tackle this. So, you know, we've always said within PCI, it's about people, process, and technology, and this fits right in there regards to what area you're involved in. So let's take a step back for a moment, Jeremy. We've talked a lot about this new guidance, which of course was announced this week during the North America community meeting. At the meeting itself, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the discussion has revolved around not only data breaches, but also the U.S.'s migration to EMV. U.S. merchants now face the EMV fraud liability shift, which took effect October 1. What impact might we see on fraud losses in other markets such as Canada, which have already made the migration to EMV? Will issuers in those markets be shifting fraud they've previously absorbed back onto U.S. merchants now? You know, that's a very, very good question. And at the meeting just yesterday, I was talking to Interact, the Canadian card scheme, and they were saying that what they find is when the card details are stolen in Canada, the fraud would always occur in the US because they could go across the border, create a MagStripe clone card, and then use it to, to undertake fraudulent transactions. So it's not just in Canada that that happens. It is around the world. In the UK and in Europe, 
the US tops all of our fraud charts. So when, when we see cards stolen, they turn up because it's easy to use them still in the MagStripe environment that is the US. So the migration to EMVs is a fantastic move forward in the fight against crime, against the card theft and card fraud in the face-to-face -face environment. And it's been celebrated and welcomed globally. And so this is really a good step forward. The challenge is that it is just one step. It isn't solving the whole card fraud problem. It's just tackling the biggest issue that we're facing at the moment. So obviously the U.S.'s move to EMV is going to impact the world. How will you see the U.S.'s migration impacting other markets from a fraud perspective? And again, that's a really interesting question. And, and interestingly, this year, as the migration has been gaining uh, momentum and support, you know, I've started talking to organizations and merchants in Europe saying, please be aware that what we're seeing is the U.S. is getting the latest chip cards, it's getting the latest PTS-approved terminals. Their levels of security are, are going to be the best there are. Now, the criminals will move. The criminals will now start looking for other options, and the next big option is going to be in the card not present space. The criminals don't have to be in the U.S. They don't have to be in Europe. They can be anywhere in the world. Are they going to target the organization in the U.S., or are they going to target an organization in Europe, where if your levels of security aren't as high as those in the U.S., you will be a target? So actually, the U.S. is going to leapfrog us slightly over in Europe. Their security is going to be at a higher level. Therefore, we will be the target, and we've got to be aware, everyone's got to be aware that fraud will go to the card not present space. They will try and steal the card data that's still in the clear text. They will use it in card not present for e-commerce fraud, for m-commerce fraud. Uh, we've seen that. It's the biggest fraud category in Europe, and everyone's now at risk globally. You know, this changes the whole playing field in the fraud space. So what about fraud migration patterns, Jeremy? Could we see other types of fraud migrating beyond to the card not present environment globally? Could there be shifts to ATM fraud, for instance? I think one of the things that we do see is that as well as upgrading all of the technology and introducing the chips, it's how you manage and prevent the fallback. One of the big changes in Europe when we migrated to EMV was that we updated all of the ATM software so that if the card is inserted, the terminal can recognize it's a chip card. Now, if the criminal can create a copy card, it will still have information on there, even if they just copy the mag stripe off a chip card, it still contains the information in that coding that says, I am a chip card. So when it goes into the slot, it will say, I am a chip card. And so if the ATM is correctly set up, the ATM will go, right, I'm just going to do a chip transaction. If there isn't a chip card because it's a stolen card from the original MagStripe data that's been copied, then the ATM will reject it. And that's had a significant impact in Europe in reducing fraud post EMV migration. So if that, as that's getting rolled out in the US, that'll be a big improvement. The fact that you can't make a clone card from the EMV data is also a big improvement. So we're going to force the, the criminals into the card not present space. And so organizations have got to look at how can we tackle that fraud category. And the best way to do that is to devalue the data through either using point-to-point -point encryption. So when, when the card is first inserted into the chip slot, we can encrypt it because the PTS device is secure, and then any data captured is, 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 uh, is encrypted data. Or you can utilize tokenization. And that does pretty much the same thing. It removes the pan and turns it into a token.
So it changes our focus. It gives us new areas to focus on. It still means that, as we've started at the beginning of this call, that we still need the incident management. We still need organizations to be prepared. Uh, and really, the guide for incident management is the best way of being prepared. But it still leaves us a lot of challenges and work to do. And then, Jeremy, before we close, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Yes, I think a lot has been said and made about the liability shift from the 1st of October. And really, and when we saw this in Europe, is you need to have a real stake in the ground so people can focus on that to really help the whole process gain momentum. The fact that come the 1st of October, everybody is not ready isn't a problem. It's not a huge issue. But what it is, it's been able to really focus people's minds, to focus the effort. And what it does, it's like from now on, people will really start building momentum and really getting the changes in place. So the fact that everything is not in place on October 1st isn't a problem. It just shows you that actually we're making great progress. It was exactly the same thing in Europe. We help it and just really drive things forward and then quite soon after that we're suddenly in a much better place and we start seeing then the reduction in face-to-face -face fraud that the chip cards bring us. Well Jeremy I appreciate your time today and I'm glad that you were able to offer us some insights from the event this week. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Again we've just heard from Jeremy King of the PCI Council. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.